1: Hi, everyone, and welcome to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. I'm Cardiff Garcia. I've been fascinated by drones for a very long time, not necessarily the military usage of drones, although that's, of course, very important, but the commercial and the hobbyist usages of these vehicles, of these unmanned vehicles, for a very long time. And I wanted to get somebody on here who could talk about it with expertise, with authority. And so we did. We brought her in. Her name is Ella Atkins. She's a professor of aerospace engineering at the University of Michigan. And although this particular week we happen to be indulging in a bit of summer holidays, about a month ago I taped an interview with her, and that's today's show. Ella, welcome to Alpha Chat. Thank you. So I want to start with a recommendation here that you change your job title to Drone expert. What do you think? Will your bosses let you get away with that?
0: I don't think so. Uh, (laughs) I I like to think I can have both titles at the same time.
1: Right. The the second one sort of inspires a kind of childlike enthusiasm, you know?
0: Right. I I think as an educator, we uh, really like to see our students have that kind of childlike enthusiasm, both when they enter the university and when they leave.
1: Okay. Great. Uh, so there's, there's so much to talk about here. Our topic is the non-military uses of drones, because I think when a lot of people think of drones, they think of like these lethal strikes conducted in distant lands, that kind of thing. But actually, there's a good chance that the use of drones is going to increase quite a bit within the next you know, few years, the next decade or so. So I guess I wanted to bring you in and... Talk about that, and I guess the place I'd like to start is with the technology itself. Like, where are we in the technology? Because when I think of a drone, a hobbyist drone, I think of something that looks like a sort of overgrown bug with a few propellers on it that's being flown by someone in a park. Um, But I don't really have a good sense of how quickly the technology is advancing. So why don't you talk about that for a little while?
0: So uh, let me go all the way back to the dawn of aviation in the early 20th century. Okay, Uh, The Wright brothers, when they were first building prototypes to... Eventually, climb on board and fly for the first time with uh, powered flight. Uh, they actually built a series of model aircraft that I think today a lot of people would call drones. They weren't the kind of multicopter you know many propeller type vehicles that we see uh, on the news all the time with hobbyists, but uh, they did test out a lot of the basic concepts of flight that they needed to prove before they actually got on board. Uh, So the model aircraft has been around for a very long time, uh, over a century. Uh, I think early on it was mostly for aerospace engineers and then later for the military to do testing. Uh, The term drone, if you look it up in the dictionary, means stingless male bee. So when you think about an insect, uh, it doesn't really have a very positive connotation. But now we usually think of the drone as being the handheld device that has uh, uh, propellers that uh, lift the vehicle off the ground. Uh, It used to be uh, that a helicopter would have one very big propeller or rotor that spun really fast and lifted the vehicle, and then there was a little one on the tail to steer it. And it became uh, possible through computers and sensor technology to have a lot more maneuverability by putting many propellers on a central structure and then lift the vehicle that way. So most people now think of the drone as a multi-copter, where multi means many, and copter comes from helicopter.
1: So multiple propellers. Multiple on propellers
0: right. lifting you. It also gives you a lot of maneuverability because you can change how much each one lifts the vehicle, and it can let you roll and pitch and yaw and go places you want to go. But within
1: the context of what you study... A drone is any unmanned aerial vehicle, right? A UAV, isn't that what what the usual definition is?
0: So there have been many terms. To be careful, I think we started out with the concept model aircraft. I am in an aerospace department, and so when I teach students about history, I teach them about the model aircraft that was a small-scale version of something that ultimately would be manned. People have been enthusiasts in the model aircraft community for a very long time. Uh, What happened over the last 20 years, I would say, is that the price of cheaply manufacturing the vehicles, the structure, and the price of the computer and the sensors and the radios came down to a level where you could just basically go out to a hobby shop and buy one very inexpensively and get it up in the air.
1: Sure. So how quickly has the technology advanced, say, in the last decade or so? Because I'm starting to get the sense that now these drones are... I guess, faster, easier to maneuver. They can probably carry more weight than they used to. Is all that correct?
0: Well, it depends on the design. So you you should think of two different designs. One is the standard cylinder with wings type of design, like we go to the airport and fly in. Right. Uh, That gives you aerodynamic lift, which means that you're not working as hard with your motors to lift the vehicle off the ground. You're not fighting gravity as much. So if you have that design, you get a larger payload. That's why the airplanes that we fly in every day look like they do. There's nothing magic happening with the propellers. The magic that has happened is that everything else has become smaller. So the amount of electronics that you need and the energy that you get out of a lightweight battery has gotten to the point where you can fly these vehicles for a reasonable amount of time it still is the case that the the standard wing design uh, that we fly in as passengers is more efficient, meaning that it can carry more weight. Okay. So there really is a trade-off there. If you want something that's very maneuverable, cheap, easy to get up in the air, you'd get one of the multicopters. If you wanted something to go for a long time you'd get one of the planes that still has wings.
1: But you, you mentioned just a second ago that you're now being able to get more energy out of a smaller battery and that that's been sort of the driving force behind why drones are increasingly used by hobbyists. Is that is that right?
0: Well, I think there's several things. So the batteries are a big reason. Uh, the other uh, reasons are that your computers, your motors – The components are lighter weight and more efficiently produced. So, for example, we can use computers to mass produce the parts that we use to put together the systems at a very small fraction of the cost that it would take for someone to manually cut the wood and form it and glue it and wait all the cycles to make it make it happen so it's just the the it's the overall same as the with manufacturing any other.
1: process has just become way better
0: though. yeah manufacturing has become better and then gps the global positioning system has given us uh, an ability to know where we are anywhere outdoors as long as we're not like down below building tops in a city like here in new york
1: okay now let's talk about uses of drones, right? So commercial uses of drones or hobbyist uses of drones. What are the kinds of things that they're being used for now? And what can we expect to happen within the next few years in terms of their applicability to sort of more quotidian and useful tasks that we can do every day?
0: Well, there are tons of tasks that I think we haven't even imagined yet. Um, One of the big applications right now is to take a very lightweight camera put it on board and fly it wherever you want it to go. Now, this has been seen as both good and bad. The bad, I think in the media has outweighed a good to the good to a certain extent. So I want to start with the negative because okay. that's I think the smaller group of applications. The reality is if a company wants to go out and conduct some sort of business operation, it's unlikely that they're going to violate disorderly conduct or peeping tom laws they're more likely to collect whatever data a paying customer that has a legitimate purpose might give them. So, for example, in agriculture, surveying crops is a is a huge possibility for these things. Um, I grew up on a cattle farm, actually, and one of the things that isn't mentioned but that is an obvious application for this is uh, counting cattle, looking at fence to see if there's any damage. There are a lot of agriculture applications that are realizable today, those also have very little potential to invade privacy because they're in very rural areas, usually over a single landowner's property. So they're ready to go today. It's a matter of figuring out the regulations, which I know we'll talk about later. Certainly. In terms of utilities, there's pipeline inspection, power line inspection. Uh, there, are, there are huge costs and risks right now in kind of the long runs of power lines and pipelines that can produce hazards to the environment, for example, if the pipeline bursts and leaks. It may have started out as a slow leak, whether it's gas, oil, or something else, that then causes an environmental consequence later after it becomes a big leak. If you had a small drone, which would be very economical to routinely fly over that pipeline, you probably could detect the small leak before it became a big leak and then just send people out to fix uh, problems that are small before they grow. Uh, it would not be nearly as as economical to send a manned aircraft out because the amount of fuel that it takes to lift people into the air, even if the camera is very lightweight, is just very uh, much larger.
1: Sure. So those are some of the useful things that drones are being used for now. Obviously, a lot of people like to use drones because they're just a lot of fun, right? And that sometimes gets them into trouble, like when they want to fly their drones over college football stadiums, for instance, or over other sporting events, and they try to film those things. What are, right now, the big restrictions on flying drones within the U.S.? In other words, what are the FAA's rules, the ones that really matter? So
0: there's a lot of uh, history that goes sure. into this. Um, I sympathize with the challenges that the all regulators worldwide face as they look at these small drones. If we go back to when the regulations were originally put forth for aviation, no one was thinking about small unmanned aircraft. They were all thinking about passengers in big transport aircraft. They were thinking about general aviation, military aviation.
1: Designed but for a different in, era. In all
0: of these yeah. cases, there were people on board What that means is that the regulations are very much geared towards protecting the people on the airplanes. Let me pause there because that's a big deal. What's happened worldwide in countries that have established aviation regulations is that they've tried to translate these policies that focus on protecting the occupants of manned aircraft to unmanned aircraft. It's not a natural fit. It just doesn't work very well. I think the regulators recognize this and they're trying to solve the problems. But in solving the problems, to err on the side of safety, they've said, let's just not let people fly unless they can fly safely based on the manned aircraft regulations. So where that's led us is to situations where we're actually trying to either certify or exempt from certification a toy that is handheld, that a kid can go to their basement and fly from even being outdoors in a big open field or the desert.
1: Okay. What are some examples of those rules?
0: Well, uh, so the FAA Reauthorization Act of 2012, this is talking about the U.S. for now, uh, drew a line, put hobbyists on one side, and it put everybody else on another side of that line. Um, Congress therefore exempted the hobbyists from the policies of the FAA. They said, as long as you stay below 400 feet line of sight and we're good citizens like the model aircraft community has been for a long time, you're fine. Now, this good citizens, maybe we'll come back to that a little bit later, but that's where they are, which meant that it made the FAA's job really challenging, and it still is, to actually rein in the hobbyists because Congress has told them not to regulate the hobbyists. They couldn't actually create policies for them. On the other side of this line was everyone else. Well, because of this challenge to create new policies and all of the bureaucracy associated with that and the approval process, there really aren't regulations in place.
1: For non-hobbyists.
0: Right. So when I say that, I think the FAA and ICAO, the International Civil Aviation Organization that considers worldwide regulatory issues and really focuses in Europe right now, They both would say, oh, yes, there are. We have policies in place. But those policies are inherited from manned aviation. So there are things, let me talk about the U.S. now because I have a little more familiarity with that. There's a Section 333 exemption process, which has been very heavily covered in the media as a way for commercial drone operators to fly. Well, that's fine, but really what's happening there? Is that those operators are becoming exempt from the normal regulatory process? It doesn't mean that there's been a new set of regulations hang on put in a place. Who
1: are those operators, first of all?
0: Anybody who wants to fly a drone. I, my understanding is that the first Section 333 exemption was given to the movie industry.
1: Okay, for so commercial usage. For commercial uses. Right. The, the operators you're talking about are people who want to use drones for some kind of commercial usage. They need an exemption in order to be able to do that.
0: Right. So that's what people are told here in the United States, is that they need to follow this exemption process. Once they have been granted the exemption, then they can go out and fly.
1: Okay. So uh, movie, you said the the movie industry has some kind of an exemption, or sometimes individual movie producers or whoever are granted that exemption. In this case,
0: I think there was a, a group that wanted to use drones for filming on studio lots, they made a very excellent case that their drones were not posing a risk of harm to people or property. They were low altitudes over that, you know, the studio areas, and and the FAA said, "Okay, you can do it." Uh,
1: Agriculture—that's another. There industry, have been, I take yeah. Th-
0: my understanding is that there have been several hundred exemptions at this point in time uh, okay. granted by the FAA. In fact, universities such as Michigan have started filing. For exemptions, Uh, our university just filed one about a week ago. Um, And part of the paperwork for that is you list the vehicles that you want to fly, and uh, they look through that and decide if they think they should fly, and then you go from there.
1: Okay, and then from what I understand, there are some sort of common sense rules that are also in place. So, for instance, drones can't be flown too close to airports, Um, they can't be flown above a certain altitude, is that right? So that they don't interfere with other aircraft, is that correct?
0: So if you go back and look at the way airspace was carved for manned aircraft, that's the starting point that everyone uses, Uh, FAA, Iko, pilots. Everyone should be looking at that. And let me encourage anyone who's listening that's a hobbyist to go out and look at airspace classifications themselves. What you see is that there are different classes of airspace that are based on the density of traffic and type of traffic. So around a busy commercial airport, like you would find Kennedy, LaGuardia, Newark, and so on in New York, you will have a band of airspace, I think it's Class B or Bravo, that you have to talk to air traffic control continuously. You have to get clearances through air traffic control to fly in and out of that airspace. And it's essential that that happen because the density of traffic is just so high that it would be very risky for... The passenger transport. Sure, there's other there's
1: other aerial aircraft in the area, so you can't do that.
0: Yeah, so but you know regardless of the class of airspace and the policy that it's in place, it just doesn't make any sense for somebody to go out with a drone and fly. Right where a commercial transport aircraft could be. They're placing at risk the 100-plus people that are on that airplane.
1: Sure. There are also, I think, sort of complicated rules around how close you can get to stadiums during individual sporting events. I don't know if it also applies to musical concerts and things of that nature. But when there are these events, you have to keep the drones a certain distance away until the event itself is over, and then you have to wait an hour or something like that. Isn't that correct?
0: So... I think there's a generalization here, right? If you have a public outdoor event, whether it's large enough that the FAA or ICAO or whatever organization puts a TFR, temporary flight restriction, over the area or not, you're talking about the temporary flight restriction. So, for example, if there's a NASCAR race or a Michigan football game, there will be a bubble of airspace around that stadium or that racetrack that has a TFR, temporary flight restriction, during the game. So that is absolutely clear that one shouldn't fly there, and that's been in place, and there is a rule in place for that with the TFR. Um, But I think there's a lot of questions in where you should fly, even if there isn't a big temporary flight restriction over uh, the event or whatever's happening. So for example, I just drove through traffic to get here, and one of the uses that the media have envisioned is to fly drones over Highways and streets to try to get a better estimate of traffic, uh, maybe to put on the TV or whatever. And the reality is that actually could pose risk if something happened to the drone and it fell out of the sky. It could very easily cause people to hit each other on the roads or not pay attention to a pedestrian. There's no TFR. Over the streets, right? So, if you have a hundred thousand people in a stadium, that's a big enough deal that a federal agency can say, "Don't fly there." But if it's just a busy freeway or a, a small concert in the park, it's still questionable whether hobbyists should be up flying over those events because they are flying over people's heads. There have been some pretty spectacular, well-publicized failures of hobbyist vehicles. There was a marathon in Australia not too long ago where a triathlete, it was a triathlon actually, and the drone fell on the person and sent them to the hospital. Uh, and that person probably didn't even have any idea that there was a drone overhead.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, it kind of sounds like from what you're saying that the rules have not yet caught up to the pace of technological advancement here. In other words, um, I guess I'm, I'm surprised somewhat by the extent to which the rules are a bit murky. They're not well settled. We're still trying to figure all this out, and yet the prospect for drones to become a sort of a normal part of everyday life seems increasingly realistic. Is that a fair way to characterize what's happening right now?
0: So by my understanding, the largest small drone manufacturer in the world, I think is DJI, which is a China-based company, and I understand that they're going to be selling approximately a billion, that's not M, that's B, billion dollars worth of drones wow. over the next year, probably, maybe more. It's a hugely growing market. What's going to happen to all these vehicles, given that each one is a $1,000 or so? That's a lot of drones out there. Somebody is flying them. And I don't think anyone in the world has said that they have final regulations that are kind of the sound guaranteed safety or at least minimize risk type of regulations. I think the real question is, is it better to regulate down from the sky or up from the ground when you're talking about these small vehicles that will be flying very, very low? What do you think? Up from the ground.
1: Okay. Why is that?
0: I think because of the examples that I was giving, the FAA is not going to know that there's a small concert in a park. They're not going to know where uh, traffic is, is gathered, where what police activity, firefighter activity. Now, there could be calls to the FAA, but that would be an extra link that's not there right now that may not be necessary. We have laws like disorderly conduct. If somebody goes out and flies a drone low over somebody's head, it's going to be the police officer on the ground that goes after them. Not the FAA. The FAA is busy at JFK, LaGuardia, Newark, and so on. But
1: This is, this is intriguing to me because, like, what would that person be charged with, right? Can they be charged with a crime right now? Because let's say that they do fly very low over someone's head, but they don't hit them. There's no accident that's caused or anything like that. But it is a dangerous scenario. Right now, could the person operating that drone, drone actually be charged with anything, or is this something where – locality by locality, city by city, state by state, um, these local areas are going to have to write their own rules on this, and are they going to be fast enough in doing so?
0: I think it's important to give people a voice as individuals, as a community, as a region, as a state. Right now, if we assume that there's going to be an international or even national uh, one-size-fits-all regulatory policy, it means that uh, rural North Dakota is going to be in the same policy as Manhattan. It's not clear to me that that makes any sense. Once you get to a group of vehicles that are going to be flying either low over skyscrapers, maybe below the tops of them, versus over a cornfield. So it should be the case that the folks in North Dakota are able to say, Let's let them out right now. Or Michigan, right? The rural Michigan, about the same thing. Right. Let's let them fly over the Great Lakes to collect science data or to monitor schools of fish uh, moving in different ways, as opposed to saying, no, 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 uh, you can't fly even 10 feet off the middle of Lake Michigan where no other airplane would ever be crazy enough to fly because it's not safe to fly that low away from land. Yeah. So uh, we need to give these places a voice. So, for example, the folks here in Manhattan might decide they didn't want drones generally flying over the streets, but maybe there's a drone park established somewhere in you know an area that's open. People will then have a place to go. All the kids that get their toy drones for the holidays aren't going to feel like they just go up to their rooftops and launch them. Right now they have no guidance. If a kid asks their parent, Where should I fly this? What's the parent going to say? If they're a hobbyist, they can say, well, go be responsible, but they can't really say, here's a good place, here's a bad place, because the cities haven't been given the authority to set out those places, and they need to have that authority.
1: Yeah, that makes sense, and it it seems to me like whatever someone's stance on this is, the fundamental nature of the problem in a rural area is pretty easy to understand, right? Right. Whereas in a city or any high-density area, really, it's really hard to know exactly which issues should even be taken into, into consideration when drafting policy that's meant to address this. I mean, I, I wouldn't even know where to start, you know?
0: It would also be completely reasonable for the experts at the FAA to, or ICAO to provide guidance – to local communities. Or ICAO
1: is which one again? What's That's the, the full?
0: International Civil Aviation Organization. So I'm trying to reach beyond the <laughs> right. borders of the United States. I think these regulatory questions are worldwide. It's not yes. just over the United States. And so I think the United States has spent a lot of time worrying about them. So has Europe. There have been some other countries that have not spent much time worrying about them, but they will eventually need to worry about them when okay. they become more common. So you know the bottom line is any city rural area, whatever community it is, can ask for guidance. But the problem is right now the, the, the aviation organizations have not begun looking down at the ground carefully. They're looking at airports. They're putting no-fly zones around the airports to protect the other aircraft. But when you say sense and avoid, which is a very common term in the industry, regulators think of that as sensing and avoiding other aircraft. They don't think of it. As sensing and avoiding terrain, buildings, people, yeah. cars, boats, because they don't really know how to do that. You can't put a sensor on every car, and use that as part of a sense and avoid sense system.
1: Yeah, there, there's something that you said in an interview with Wired magazine about drone operators who are flying their drones into wildfires and interfering with the ability of firefighters and the helicopters that are meant to drop either water or I can't remember, you know, some kind of firefighting uh, substance over the fires it was interfering with their ability to do their jobs. And you talked a lot about personal responsibility. So I guess that's the flip side of what you've been advocating, right, which is that the FAA should have a better understanding of the reality on the ground for people in some areas where they don't have to be regulated quite as much. But- there should be some punishments in place for people who abuse the privilege of flying a drone.
0: I think there needs to be clarity for law enforcement, firefighters, and other agencies who work very hard from the ground to keep us safe and to help us out. <clears throat> so, for example, it's not clear that the firefighters even thought they had authority to do anything with the drones because to we're told— To shoot you mean? Well, to- whether it's shooting them or jamming their signals so that they fall— we're getting to a point where we need to make sure that every ground-based law enforcement firefighter and other public servant who needs to actually carry out their job is empowered to feel like their purview, their you know authority extends into that very low-altitude airspace. So, for example, the firefighter could then not worry about the drone from the perspective of, well, maybe it's somebody's and I shouldn't mess with it. They should be like, you know, this drone is a criminal, right? It's, it's, it's the same as if somebody was in a car that had driven right into the fire line and decided to sit there and chain themselves to the fire truck and so on, right? It's blocking their activities. Right. And so that, that's a big question.
1: Let's talk about Amazon for a second because a couple of years ago, it was in this thing that got a lot of fanfare, right? There was the suggestion by Amazon that someday – it would be able to deliver packages via drone. And then there was a lot of speculation about whether or not this was realistic, whether or not it was a stunt. What did you think about that? And what should we, what should we take away from that announcement, even though it's a couple of years into the past now?
0: So when the announcement first came out, it was uh, on right after Thanksgiving. It was over Black Friday, the weekend, and so on. And a lot of people thought it was a clever marketing stunt. Amazon got some publicity and so on. Amazon doesn't do things accidentally, and they were not just interested in publicity. That's clear, because they've kept going. They have a group that's been very aggressive, not just at technology development, but also at uh, trying to help figure out the regulatory process by which they could actually carry out this mission of package delivery. So uh, last, uh, I think it was two weeks ago, there was a conference called UTM, UAS, or Unmanned Aircraft System Traffic Management, Uh, NASA, um, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, has a new program where their technologists are trying to figure out how to let all these small drones flying at low altitude communicate through a system that can accept the data that they would generate and also provide them with information regarding where other vehicles are, flight plans, and so on. So ultimately, that could be part of the kind of low-altitude traffic management system that we need to host all of these emerging applications uh and and so amazon has been very heavily involved with trying to help now they obviously have their own agenda in mind when they try to help but they have put a lot of manpower behind trying to you know not only develop what they need internally but also see through how airspace might look and what would happen um operationally if these vehicles were allowed to get out there and fly.
1: But it sounds like from what you're saying that, yeah, this is a possibility that we should take seriously, that someday Amazon might, in fact, be able to send me a stack of books via drone.
0: Yeah, I mean, when I was driving here just two blocks away as I was sitting in traffic, there was a UPS truck parked off to the side. And if you think about the economics of the driver in a full-size truck carrying uh, a half-pound package especially to a suburban or rural neighborhood, the cost to UPS is extraordinary to pay the person and the fuel and the maintenance on that large vehicle compared to a tiny little handheld drone that was capable of carrying that same package. So I don't think it's as ridiculous in terms of cost as what some people have written it off as. I think it could have a good economic model. I think it would be used as a mix. They wouldn't suddenly start sending 100-pound packages with the small drones. They couldn't carry them. But they could send very small packages, especially to urban areas where there would be a good business case for it.
1: Okay. I, I want to talk about the potential dangers that we should be aware of in a future where drone usage is widespread. So I don't, I don't want to be too dystopian about this. I want to you know, stay in the realm of what could feasibly be a problem. But so, for instance, right now, obviously a lot of drones have cameras on them. They're used to take pictures and things like that. And so naturally we're all worried about privacy issues. But as the technology gets better and better – you know, what's to stop somebody from putting a gun on one of these things, you know, and controlling it from afar? I mean, what what are the kinds of dangers that we should be aware of, and how should we prevent them? How should we uh, protect ourselves against them?
0: So uh, after nine eleven, I had a friend. I was at the University of Maryland at the time. Uh, at the time, they closed off the airspace in the D.C. area, and I think they did in the New York area as well, <clears throat> when they created a defense zone around each of the sensitive city areas. Uh, he actually did an analysis of how much damage explosives could cause if you were carrying them on a two or four-seat Cessna airplane, which is just a general aviation, very small passenger airplane, uh, versus a, you know a delivery truck. The reality is you have a lot less payload on a plane than you do on a delivery truck, so the threat that would be posed by the delivery truck is actually quite a bit higher if you want to do a lot of damage to a building type of thing. Now, in terms of a weapon, there are many ways to carry weapons, and we already know how to carry them with airplanes because the military has done that for a long time. Now, we're not talking about military applications, and I don't want to scare anyone, but you can carry a gun in a lot of ways. In fact, I think there's one question as to whether a bullet is an unmanned aircraft itself. Now, it's not an aircraft because it's not powered, but it does fly, and it can fly a long distance. So why would it be worse to allow guns? I don't know. I mean, why would it be better to allow guns than to allow drones? Because the drones aren't really envisioned to be equipped for guns, whereas the guns are sold with the express purpose of doing harm to some animal or person.
1: Oh, sure. But I certainly don't want to relitigate (laughs) gun control in this conversation. But this is is a relevant
0: question. If those who advocate for gun control believe that the guns can be taken off the streets through gun control, then those guns would right. exist to put on the drones. No,
1: I, I understand that, but it does seem like it would make it easier if you could control the the delivery of the gun or the delivery of the weapon remotely. Because for one thing, it gives you multiple chances to do it. Right, If it's stopped or whatever and you're in a room somewhere, then you just send another one out. And so if we're surrounded by these drones and we don't have a good sense of which are being used as weapons and which are being used for sort of safe anodyne purposes, then it seems like that's something that we would want to be mindful of. right? And, again, I, I have no idea what I'm saying right now, I just and I don't want to be dystopian well, about so it. So I, I hate it to seems see this like podcast
0: a, go down to the notion <laughs> of gun-carrying drones because right. – that is not the applications that anybody that I know is envisioning for them unless they're doing Department of Defense type of activities. Yeah, I'm talking right? about That's criminals not,
1: or you know, I'm not talking right. about responsible so, people so who are planning. If somebody is so know. concerned
0: about being remote, about being far away from where a weapon is fired, let's open up this discussion to autonomous cars and smaller ground based vehicles. Sure. Right? Because they would have the same ability to be controlled remotely that an unmanned aircraft. Oh,
1: sure. And would they, have. they will be, though, right? Well, I mean, we're, we're moving towards right. driverless vehicles, So I think where too. you're
0: transitioning to is away from the drone and the notion of the autonomous system, which might be airborne, but it might be on the ground. And I assure you the one on the ground will be capable of a lot more firepower because a little multicopter is not going to be able to carry a giant bit of explosives. It would it would carry a small... Sure.
1: Just to be clear, I'm not attacking drones. I'm just trying to identify no, and advance the kinds of things that we should be Right, aware But let of, me the, be clear. This is a very
0: sensitive issue. For years, people didn't like drones because they had this vision of them killing.
1: Right. In of other the words, military. that's what that's what and a lot of people still of, associate them with.
0: Yeah, but you're kind of drawing it back around there. You can take any technology and make it an instrument of harm and destruction. It doesn't matter whether it flies. And, you know, I'm not going to be very cooperative, I guess, in talking about guns on drones because I think that's a silly discussion. Because you can have guns on anything, right? Because you can have guns on anything. In fact, you can hire somebody and pay them a lot of money to go and kill somebody if you want to, and then you're remote. As long as they can't trace it back to your account, you know, you can assassinate somebody and you're done. So that's just, you know, putting a gun on some device or in somebody else's hand, is something that I would never conceive of doing, and I like to think that no one listening would either.
1: <laughs> oh, I certainly hope not. Um, but that doesn't mean that nobody out there ever would. So just to be clear, because I, I think everything you said is totally reasonable, but at the same time, in many parts of life, we're grappling with new technologies. It seems like the ability to ask these questions oh, is sure. important. You well, know? we can
0: ask these questions, but I bet that when we get out there with the small drones and we see all of the uses that come out, that they're going to re- search and find more lost kids who are hurt in desperate yeah, net need of attention, will be, will be then positive. we're going to see drones out there shooting people. Right. And so the net benefit is positive, but it will only be realizable if we're not so scared of the potential for a camera flying over a backyard or a drone potentially being carried by somebody hostile right. that we don't let the vehicles out of the sheds and into yeah. the skies
1: yeah i mean because uh, I think that line of thinking applies in many areas, so for instance, you were talking about air traffic control systems right, and how nasa 's working on an internet based air traffic control system for drones, just like something similar for cars might be susceptible to being hacked, right, so will this, and so to me, it seems like as we as we start embracing the use, the very positive and beneficial use of these technologies, we still have to be paying attention to some of the things that might go wrong, to some of the unanticipated consequences.
0: Well, I think that's true in any technology sector. And uh, let me scare people about commercial aviation a little bit. Now, I'm going to go fly the next time I have a reservation, which is in a week or two. Fly-by-wire systems, which are present on most Boeing and Airbus jets that we fly in, Fly-by-wire means that you have a computer between the pilot moving the controls and the motors, the engines, and the control surfaces that make the plane fly the right direction. Putting that computer in the middle between where the pilots have control and things actually happen to the airplane already places the systems at the same risk of a cybersecurity attack that we would have if they were more autonomous. That's important for people to think about. It doesn't mean that it's dangerous to get in an airplane. What it means is that people pay attention to those problems, but we have already made the decision that we're going to take out all of those older mechanical linkages because they themselves had a lot of weight and a lot of problems. They were susceptible to failures as well from mechanical problems, hydraulic problems, and so on. We have a lot of crash data that shows those problems have happened, and the fly-by-wire decision was made because it will be safer. It already is. The number of accidents in fly-by-wire planes are extraordinarily low, and to my knowledge, none of them have been because of cybersecurity problems.
1: Okay, uh, we're just about out of time. But is there anything else about drones that you want to share with us, with our listeners, that we haven't talked about? Anything cool? Anything quirky? Anything on the horizon? Uh, that you think you'd want to emphasize?
0: Sure. Let me put my technology hat back on. And let me also say, please be responsible when you fly. Pay attention to the rules. Don't fly near other airplanes or over people's heads. But from a technology perspective, there's an entire new class of vehicles that's beginning to emerge called hybrid vehicles in response to this notion that we want to have long-range flights. So we want the drone to be able to stay up for an endurance of an hour or two, maybe more. We want them to be able to carry a decent payload, and we want them to go a long distance. But, like I was saying before, the multi-copter designs are not very efficient because they're using power with these propellers to lift themselves up. So we're seeing a resurgence in different configurations of vehicles, things with tilting wings, things with uh, tilting propellers that rotate forward and vertical, like the tilt rotor helicopter that people fly in. These are not military applications anymore. These are Valid commercial applications, one thing that I'm very excited about that I didn't talk about, um, medicine delivery and blood sample collection and delivery. In rural areas of third-world countries in particular, that's a huge challenge. The roads are not well-developed, and supplies need to be delivered to people who are critically ill. And then there are also not very good medical facilities in a lot of the rural areas. And so these things could bring them back to hospitals, and they could have a much more efficient system that would save a lot of lives. So these types of applications are going to make worldwide usage of these drones really compelling, and it already is beginning to happen. So not only the, you for something like that to happen, you also have to have a lot of autonomy. The people in these rural villages are not going to be aerospace engineers, they're not going to be pilots, they're not going to be computer scientists. These vehicles have to be Autonomous. Not so that they can do harm and be big, scary AI things, but so that their medical supplies can be delivered safely and their blood can be safely carried back to the hospital. And they need a button to push that says go, and the plane needs to be able to do it. We can do that now. We have some safety-based research to, get to develop technology and get out there, but it's going to be a very exciting time when that can happen.
1: All right. Well, it's been a fascinating talk Ella Atkins, Professor of Aerospace Engineering at the University of Michigan, a.k.a. Drone Expert. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode of Alpha Chat. And as always, we want to hear from you. So email us at alphachat@ft.com, at ft.com or call us at 917-551-5012. You can also tweet me directly at Cardiff Garcia. This episode was produced and edited by Amy Keene, As always, this is her podcast and the rest of us are just talking in it.